Hello, I hope that you're all doing well. Thank you for being patient as I put these up. I actually did a recording of this earlier and the microphone was not turned on. Worst thing ever. So I'm re-recording it with a good microphone this time so that the audio will come in. Hopefully I am able to do as good of a job as I did the first time coming up with this as I follow the outline. So today this is going to be part two on the topic of depression and suicide. If you recall in the first part, a lot of it was trying to establish a setting for suicidality and some of the natural tendency and proclivity to fall into that. I was talking with one of the providers I work with today about it, and she was asking somewhat about this aspect of if you're saying that the animal component of us has a proclivity towards suicide, then why don't we see animals committing suicide? It's more that an animal does not have the same type of consciousness that we have. We're an animal to view the world, to view existence in the same way, the natural response of the animal would be something similar to that, would be akin to that, that the natural man's response to a suffering particularly an exquisite amount of suffering that is endless in nature, is to generate some form of escape, and that generally comes as a manifestation of suicidality. So for today, I wanted to look at how we respond to suicide. So as always, you have to do the standard warning or caution. I am not saying these things to give you medical advice. If you have a problem, you should seek out a medical professional. And in a very legitimate sense, if you truly are struggling with suicidal thoughts, you should be seeking help from some sort of a professional. And if you have a point where you're developing and writing plans, that's where hospitalization really becomes a relevant issue. So, you know, I'm often asked by students, what do you say to someone when they say that they're having serious suicidal ideation, when they say that they have thoughts about committing suicide that are very serious. Now, this is a very difficult question. How does one respond to the dark and grave questions of suicide? So before attempting to tackle this question, I need to first point out that in a clinical setting, you are responding to the individual. In order to precisely reply to an individual's suicidal ideations, you have to come to know that individual and their narrative. In a forum such as this, my response will be more generalized. Therefore, forgive me if my response doesn't perfectly apply to every particular situation. There are many different reasons and causes for suicidal thoughts, and they are best addressed with the specificity that comes from an actual conversation with an individual. I guess that in even attempting to respond to such an enormous question like this, I am doomed to fail in many ways. I do acknowledge the inherent limitations of this forum. This forum constrains my responses to be directed towards ideologies more than individuals. So take these thoughts as just that. They are thoughts. They are my thoughts. They are not representative of a group or an organization. Just mine. And they're thoughts. People think through things. Thoughts are imperfect. Hopefully, in doing this, I'm becoming better in my own personal ability to respond to this and working through these difficult issues. My hope is that by sharing my thoughts that I can provide some help in processing some of the philosophical premises 
that would either form or perpetuate particular types of suicidal ideation. So how would I respond to someone who says they plan to commit suicide or have serious suicidal ideations? First, I would look at them. I look into their eyes to let them know that I'm willing to look at them. This isn't always easy, and this goes both ways. The individual who has these troubles often won't look at you. This lack of eye contact is quite telling. You see, when a troubled individual embodies a difficult and tragic state of being, both of us are tempted to look away. We can do this by minimizing the problem, ignoring the problem, avoiding, trying to forget it, distractions, all these are an attempt to not look at the problem. You as the listener need to look at them in a, in a legitimate, literal way. Look them in the eye. And for the person that's trying to tell their story, try to look the other person in the eye. So as an example of the difficulties of this eye contact and the avoidance, recall maybe a time in your life where you have walked across the, where you're walking on a street and you, you start to widen your circle, you widen your, uh, the direction that you're headed in order to avoid an individual. You may also turn your head away to try not to make eye contact with somebody. Sometimes it could be someone like a mendicant, a beggar. So bring to remembrance the distance that you put between yourself and this person in your steps. You know, most people do this because they're not interacting with a person. And I'm not being overly critical. I'm just stating that's what people do, generally speaking. They are not interacting with a person. They're interacting with that which this person is embodying at that time. Most simply, this suffering person on the streets represents a problem. That's what they see. They see the problem more so than the person. And this isn't just a Saturday to-do list type of problem. It's one that is purely unknown. And as long as it remains unknown, it's boundless. Unknown things have no definition, they have no name, and having no name and no definition makes it boundless and infinite. Being boundless, the scope will stretch as infinity does beyond numberless horizons. So the thought of this type of problem makes all man shudder. We tremble to even briefly consider such a miserable condition. We're overwhelmed and in our overwhelmed state, we're humiliated at our incompetence. You don't know how to fix this problem. You have no idea what you're dealing with. If you were smart enough, maybe you could, but you don't. So there's a humiliation in looking at this problem. There's vulnerability and weakness. And even to just look at that problem as it is exposes to you your vulnerability and your weakness. Because you're going to look at this thing that is infinite in scale. And again, this goes both ways. And it's going to shrink you and expose everything that you aren't, everything that you lack. So, of course, what's the natural response? Look away. But rather than fall into this pit, what people do is they do look away. They make a very broad circumference around the problem. Now, of course, remember that these are human beings, not problems. And again, I state it in this way just to illustrate how people react and respond in the scenario. I'm not saying what they should do. That's a different question altogether. I'm just saying 
that's what people do. I'm pointing out this uncomfortable scenario to help give the appropriate context for the importance of looking at a person when they are struggling because it's representative of looking at a problem. Anyone who's married would know that usually one of the least effective tactics when you're having struggles or problems in a marriage is to ignore them, to not talk to each other about it, to just keep it quiet and keep it silent. Rather, when there is a problem, if you want, a, if you want any hope of success, both people need to come together and look at the problem and address it openly and honestly. When a person expresses suicidal ideations, give them your attention and your presence. Because, like the homeless person, we must assume that most people have walked right past them, unwilling to acknowledge their existence, unwilling to acknowledge their suffering and pain and struggle. Giving attention to a problem is difficult. It's extremely difficult. Looking at and hearing problems is painful. Remember, it's natural for both parties to respond to problems by avoiding them, pretending like they never happened or do not exist. So if you will look at the problem, they too will be looking at it. If you will attend to the problem, they too will attend to it. This attention and conscious gaze is crucial absolutely crucial and necessary for healing and progress to occur. Problems are real. If we ignore them, we are ignoring reality. And if we ignore reality, this comes with very serious consequences, just like the consequences of ignoring monthly bills, ignoring your taxes. Remember, there. if you go back to this example of marriage, there are many spouses who can attest to the consequences of ignoring their partner's problems, acting like they don't exist or things have never happened. The idea of looking at a problem is highlighted in a really cool, somewhat strange way in the Old Testament of the Holy Bible. There's a story in the book of Numbers where the Lord sends fiery serpents against the children of Israel, and many people were killed by these snakes. And I'm sure that Moses and the Israelites, who were bitten by these poisonous serpents, didn't want to look at another state snake. I remember uh, some friends that I had from Ghana, and we brought a, a little garden snake that we had captured on a run. And when we were stretching, we kind of let it loose, and they were terrified of it. I have no idea what kind of snakes they had in Africa, but just seeing these small little harmless garden snakes took them back to a very terrifying place. People really don't like snakes. And so it's kind of an odd thing that here is the, here are these poisonous serpents that are going around killing people. And the, the cure for this is that Moses is supposed to take a snake and put it on a pole. And the, the desired cure only came by looking at the snake. They had to look at the culprit or the offender. In order to find healing... An afflicted individual needs to look at the very thing that had wounded them. There's a funny video, I think it's called It's Not About the Nail on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, you should look it up. It's kind of funny. I don't really know how to, to really deal with a situation like that uh, because there's this aspect there where 
the uh, husband's talking to the wife and it's just like, look at the nail. I mean, there is an aspect where the individual isn't really looking at the problem. So it's quite insightful that here we have this this story, this very ancient story, truly, where you have a problem and the cure is looking at the problem. If I wanted to be more specific, they didn't just need to look at the serpent. What they were doing is they were looking at the serpent upon a pole. The pole is a symbolic shadow of the cross of Christ. So there is this religious aspect to this narrative where it says, you look at the problem, you look at the destroyer, the opposition, the snake. And you're supposed to bring that, juxtapose that to the symbolic shadow of Christ. Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the gospel. He is that which is able to overcome and transcend problems. You need to mix those two concepts together. If you don't have the problem, then there's really nothing to solve. And the catalyst that is Christ isn't able to resolve that. That's mainly what we talked about in the previous section, was the fall is a necessary precursor to the redemption. The serpent and the pole need to be brought together. And there is a relationship with fall and redemption, with the snake and the snake on the pole. Looking at the problem together with the source and substance of that thing which descended below all problems, to the bottom of hell itself and transcended the entirety of all problems and, trans and tragedy, this was the path to redemption that's laid out in the book of Numbers. And perhaps it may turn out that our, our willingness to attend to and look at problems is necessary. It's an absolutely essential step in the transformative redemption, in the transformative process of redemption. This is again another reason why I believe it is critical to look at and give attention to the depressed person who's being torn apart by the dissonant sounds of suicide. This person may be a friend, may be a family member. Being willing to be vulnerable enough to hear their narrative. Very powerful, very powerful. In Christianity, the principle of attention and presence is further emphasized in another powerful way. The Holy Bible speaks of a deity of many names. This deity, member of the Godhead, is known as the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of God. The Hebrew word for spirit, or the spirit, is ruach. In Greek, it is translated often as the word pneuma. In John 14.26, Jesus refers to this spirit as the comforter. The title and name of comforter given to a member of the Godhead is a Greek word, parakletos. Its most literal definition is to call to one's aid. Para means close, and kletos is to call. So it's to call someone close to you. It is reminiscent of a verse found in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. The word succor in Greek is boethio, 
meaning to come to one's aid or to run to one's aid. So think about these image. In Hebrews, it's referring to Christ, Jesus Christ, he who has experienced the totality of consciousness, the totality of human experience in his atoning sacrifice. He knows how to succor them that are tempted. He knows how to run to them, to run to their aid. And the, the emphasis there, obviously, is the speed at which God is willing to run and to come close. So you bring that next to this idea of a comforter to call close to you. When you are in need, there is a part of you that will draw close, that will run to your aid. It's also interesting to look and break down this idea of comforter because it's it's kind of a legal term. It's a it's a lawyer. And it's not usually what you would think of when you think of a member of the Godhead. It's actually quite the opposite <laughs> or the image you have associated with lawyer. Uh, but the idea of the comforter, that which you're calling to your aid, it's legal advice. It's you, you have a legitimate problem. And usually in the religious setting, it has to do with your personal value and worth, which has been drawn into question. You've been accused of a crime. You have been called a sinner. And that means you're in big trouble. And what are you supposed to do? You have the comforter, Paracletos, which will come to your aid as if it were to give you legal advice. This is also really interesting because it goes with something known as the faithful witness, which we'll come back to at some point. We can expand on this concept a little bit later. Um, this coming to one's aid, this spirit, ruach, pneuma, breath or force, that stands next to us in time of need is the Holy Ghost. It is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Now, Christ said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Likewise, those who desire to comfort those who stand in need of comfort, they too may come to one's aid and stand near them and sit with them for a while. When people are at their lowest point, they often feel trapped and alone. Because they have not shared their condition with anyone, it is as if they are by themselves. If you take time to hear the tragedy of this person, they will at least feel elevated by having someone's company, if only for a few minutes. No advice or solution needs to be given. All that is needed is presence and attention to help lift the burden of loneliness, and per perhaps in doing so, you can rekindle some feelings of hope. If you want a good contemporary example of this, watch this. Watch a scene from uh, Inside Out. You can hunt this down on YouTube. Uh, it's I think if you just typed in um, sadness talks with bing bong. So there's a scene, spoiler alert, in this movie where you have two characters. One of them, he's a, an imaginary friend. His name is bing bong. And in this scene, what happens is he kind of just lost his entire world. And it shows him sitting down, broken and disheveled and in despair. And there's Joy, one of the characters, and Sadness. Now, Joy sees this and is a little bit troubled because seeing Bing Bong so sad makes her uncomfortable. So she goes over and tries to give him an, a pep talk, tries to give him some advice, tries to cheer him up, give him some hope, give him some juice, some spirit, some happiness. And Bing Bong is having none of it. It just bounces right off of him. And I'm sure at some point in your life, you've seen similar attempts with individuals. If you are 
trying to cheer someone up and just nothing is happening and and all of your advice all of your energy that you're trying to give to someone is just coming right back at you then probably the best thing to do is just shut up <laughs> stop talking and start listening so joy kind of gives up in this endeavor and uh, sadness comes up to bing bong and literally just points out the obvious things that she's noticing. She notices that Bing Bong looks sad. Like, you look like you're sad. That looks very difficult for you. And then Bing Bong starts to open up, starts to talk through and express where he is at, express the experiential reality that he is in at that moment. And they have a short interaction where Bing Bong continues to express and sadness empathizes and listens to Bing Bong and at the end of it, Bing Bong is able to just kind of stand up, get back up, and go back to work, go back on his journey. Simply a listening ear, time, and attention are able to lift and mend Bing Bong's wounded spirit. And this is true with many people. Now, I'm not suggesting this is going to cure everything, but it's a good start. It's a good skill to have, and maybe it is the most essential skill. There is a proverb that says, that he that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Truly, your first step is to not do anything other than listen. You have no idea what you're up against. <laughs> you have no idea what's going on. And that's your reality when you encounter this person. That's why in the first place you were trying to avoid it. And if you're going to try and make things better, you have to listen. You have to know what you're up against. And listening will allow you to start to put this thing, which is infinite in its scope, into something that has words, that has sentences. It gets more refined little by little until you can bring it from this infinite potential into a word, a name, a bounded space. When I am with this person with suicidal thoughts, I will ask them to tell me about their suicidal thoughts. If they have had plans, have them tell me about their plans. Have them tell me about their reasons for having suicidal thoughts, their motivations, what they believe will happen after their life. Have them talk about the problem. Have them talk about what they're experiencing, whatever their reality is, their world is, to have them open up that. Now, as they tell me, it's usually painful and tragic. And as they tell me the dreadful tragedy that has befallen them, as they articulate the hell, truly the word hell, that they are in, I would, before I make any commentary, listen to them. I pay attention to their story and its details. I do my best to give them my full attention so that they know that they have been heard. I do my best to stay with this individual through the entirety of their story without interruption. I try my best not to leave them through be through being distraction or by being distracted. I would remain present with them from beginning to end. To listen is to enter into the world of another person. In this case, in this in the case of suicide and depression, severe depression, it's often a world that is gloomy and abounding in suffering. Yet Something in the gesture of attention and listening may suggest that it's possible 
to even gaze, to look at such a horror and not be destroyed, which is a big first step. If you really listen to someone and both people open themselves up to one another in honesty and integrity and vulnerability and courage, then at least, at the very least, the tortured individual need not be alone, if only for a moment. When looking into the eyes of another person as they embody their problems, you may for a moment enter into the world of this individual. I'm personally, I'm really truly not always the most emotional of types, but as this happens, there's often great sorrow. Tears can be brought to the surface, and as well they should, as we both examine the tragedies inherent in life. It is more than appropriate to spend some time to mourn with those that mourn. Spend a minute with somebody who is struggling, even if it pains you to do so. Resist the first temptation to turn and run. Spare a minute to mourn, to weep, to suffer with this individual, and lift that most horrible feeling of loneliness. Remember that it was loneliness that shook the Messiah as he hung upon the cross and cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The psalmist wrote, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bowls have compassed me, strong bowls of Bashan have beset me round, they gaped upon me with their mouths, as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them, and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword. Save me from the lion's mouth. Pay attention to these words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Be not thou far from me. Haste thee to help me. Remember Boethio? Succor them who stand in need of succor. Run to them. Haste. Paracletos. Comfort. So much of the pain 
that we consider that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced and this final cry to just not be alone. Beneath the press of Gethsemane, we read that an angel came to support Christ. And as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Never underestimate the power of presence. There are no words recorded in this exchange. All we know is that the angel was there. Do not feel like you need to speak some magical words to fix a problem. Your pep talk may not be needed, so do not rush the conversation. Or rush to conversation, just be there. Be present. Be with the person. Do what you need to do to let them know that you are there. This is a reminder, after all, that someone is there for them. You are a placeholder, after all, a candle bearing something beyond yourself. That fire which you bear will speak for itself. That fire which you hold up by giving your presence is that spirit that will draw near to them. So try not to get in its way with cliches and platitudes. If there is, a, if there is cause to speak, just simply remind them that you're here for them and that you will be here for them. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. That's Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1. There is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. When it is time to speak and there is a time to speak, what would I say to such a person? What do you tell someone who is in a hell of sorts? Again, remember, I'm, I'm discussing this with ideologies. So at some point, we must confront the ideology. So how do you respond to the ideology of hell? And I use the term hell because it is a suitable representation of the mortal phenomena. Hell is a place of great darkness, a place of endless falling. And this is what people see. It is what is meant and captured when a person says the words, no hope. I feel like I have no hope. Hell means no hope of change, no hope for transformation or progression. It is to be damned, to be stuck in an awful condition forever without hope of rescue, deliverance, reconciliation, or escape. When a person with suicidal ideation looks into their future, this is often what they see, a deep and dark endless pit. It is very common for a chronic struggle with depression and suicidal thoughts to constrain and constrict a person's vision. In fact, it can constrain and constrict the entire self, their entire world. It will shrink narrower and narrower until all they see is the darkness of hell. Depression radically skews a person's vision in this way. Though a person may be sitting comfortably in front of you, 
in an equally real and true manner, they're not even there at all. The coddling air conditioning and other amenities that are, they, they just become completely unconscious. The artwork on the wall, the other people in the room are no longer even in the person's mind. There's only one thing in sight, darkness. When one's vision falls into the endless pit that exists in the mind, it is important to come back to earth, so to speak. So take a deep breath. Come back to the present. Feel the air. Try to get something to eat or drink. This will help you get some ground back under your feet. Once a person has enough presence to be with their breath, to maybe just be in the room, I usually would ask them to look. This directive, after all, was the primary message that the angel of God spoke to Nephi in his great vision. I ask the person to look within themselves. I ask them why they are still alive at this time. What is it in them that is keeping them alive now, that has kept them alive this entire day or yesterday? I ask them to look for why they are here right now, why they haven't acted on these thoughts already. What is it inside of them that has kept them alive, that's keeping them alive now and has kept them alive this entire day or yesterday or this entire month or for their entire life? There has been something there. There's evidence of it right in front of both of you. And so to direct ourselves to that, to attend to that can be quite helpful. Because in dissonance, both forces co-manifest, the adversary and the redeemer, the snake and the staff, the pole. The ideology of suicide is generally perturbing for people for long periods of time, months and years. And the fact that it was perturbing means that there was conflict, there was friction, two directions butting up against each other. So what was it? in them that fought against the suicidal ideations for so long? What is it that's there right now, fighting, continue to fight, continuing to speak? Why are they here right now talking to me? Why are they asking for help? If there truly is no hope for help, then why are they looking for it? Why are they here? Why haven't they acted on these thoughts? Though there is some training behind this response, my line of questioning isn't a trick. I'm sincere because I believe in the appropriateness of the question. I'm aware of my mind and intent. The question is truly mine and not that of a textbook. It's my question alone, and I'm asking this honestly to the individual. If they can identify the hope that is within them, then we can discuss this, capitalize on this, and expand this hope. Perhaps we could even make plans to protect it, to feed it, to nourish it, to grow it. If we can expand this light in them, their countenance can change, and the darkness will fade enough to rescue them from this dark moment. Remember that hope is a light. It is a light that is opposite to the darkness of hell. By asking someone to look for the reasons they have currently or have had previously for living, you are, you are working with them to see light, to see hope. You are actively spending time looking at 
a regenerative light. Hell is described as an eternal fall. In contrast, light is a force that lifts individuals. It continues to ascend brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Very often when I ask this question, I get the response, I don't know. What is it that has kept you alive so long? Why are you here? Why haven't you acted on these thoughts? I don't know. I think the best response to this comes from Rafiki, who said to the downtrodden Simba, look harder. Spend a few minutes, if necessary, searching. Spend some time. Don't rush it. Look harder. If the individual will look harder, they can break themselves out of the constrained myopic perspective of a suicidal motivation. In an interesting way, one of the treatments that's developed for severe depression and suicidality are ketamine treatments. And one of the main ways that we look at how ketamine works in such a rapid manner is ketamine is extremely expansive. It's egolytic. That's the term that we use. Ego, the self, lytic, it breaks it apart. And the ego gets so constrained with severe depression and suicidality that, like I said, it's this narrowing. It just got smaller and smaller and smaller so that all that exists is this very small, stubborn view on suicide and death and no hope. Ketamine just obliterates that immediately, like within minutes. And you're brought into this extremely expansive realm. The term psychedelic is a manifestation of the self. And so it's going to break down the narrow ver version of the self and expand that. And it can stretch it extremely far to a point where people feel connection with all things. And it's really hard after that, after you just take a few minutes zipping around the universe, feeling connected with all of matter, all of time, with music, with yourself, with other individuals, with history, to come back into this narrow view that's so constrained and disconnected. Ketamine will do that in a, in a strange way, obviously, as a psychedelic, and will do that in a medicinal way. Beyond the medicine, in a psychological way, you can stretch yourself on, you can stretch yourself on your own by doing these types of exercises, by, tr by trying to get yourself to look outside of that. It's just like, I, I, I like the example of stretching because for those of you that have had any physical tightness and how that kind of gets tight and constrained, that stretching and something like a massage can relax that muscle so that the tension starts to go away. The problem may still be there, but you can alleviate some of the tension that's there in the present. If an individual is struggling to identify reasons to not act on these thoughts right now, I ask them to look into their past. In a weird metaphoric way, I ask them to look for the spirit of an ancient king which once ruled within them and gave them a sense of order, an order, an order that was manifested as sanity, as hope. What kept you alive in the past? Who was this king that was able to maintain some semblance of order for a period of time? After exhausting the internal tablets of knowledge and wisdom that exist within the individual, I often invite them to look to the brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity. We are all engaged in this struggle to some degree. It is something that is common to man. Consult and draw upon the wisdom of the ancients, your culture, 
your past, your present. If you don't have the answer, that's okay. Some things take time. Sometimes we don't have the answer, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. Human beings have a curious ability to be oblivious to the obvious. Perhaps other people have had similar questions that this struggling individual now asks. Perhaps their wisdom can be of some use to a person that is gripped by the Freudian Thanatos, a word Thanatos that was representative of the drive or motivation toward death. Look at the world around you. People keep living. Why is that? People certainly must have discovered something to combat the archetypal death drive, the Thanatos within them. What in the world is that? Legitimately, it's a very honest question at this moment. So the individual who's struggling to see this in their world, and maybe they've forgotten of the kings of the past. Maybe they've forgotten their father. That's the story, remember, of the Lion King that we're referring to. Rafiki tells him to look harder because he's trying to revivify the king of the past, that thing which established order in the Pride Lands. And that was what was needed for Simba to be able to reconnect with so that he could go reestablish order in his world. What is the hope within man? What is the counterforce to Thanatos? There has to be something there or we'd all be dead. If there was truly only one force, one drive, one motivation alone, this Thanatos, this drive towards death and destruction, the force that has alliance with nihilism, then things would have been brought to their logical, tragic end. But things haven't. Look into the world. What has fought against this? What has kept that force of evil at bay? Now I pause because it's not enough for me to articulate what this is. You know, it's not my role to give them this answer. I can point out the problem, and this is why I'm describing it in the sense, because this is often where people are at. This is describing what the problem is. When you listen to it, that may be the problem. I don't know what the reason is for living anymore. And it's not my job to just give it to them. It's to stand with them and to be with them as they go on their journey alone. To me, it's a crucial, crucial revelation to move from, I don't see any hope. I can't see it. And, and draw in the conclusion that that means that there is no hope, period, to, his, to the to the difference of, I don't see hope right now, but maybe, maybe there is some that I can get. I can witness of the existence of these things. I can point in directions, directions to look. Maybe I can point them and show them particular paths, but the journey must be trodden by themselves. There's only so much you can do. You can listen, you can point, you can advise people to look, but you can't take, you can't carry this person all the way on their own. They have to make this journey themselves. Like Frodo, they are the ring bearer. It's their burden to bear. And maybe in some dramatic way, you'll pick them up sometimes like Sam, 
You can't carry the ring, but you can carry them for a moment or two because sometimes people truly need that. But more often than not, the, the majority of the story, it's Frodo's journey to take. You can be part of the Fellowship. You can be Gimli or Legolas, Aragorn. Sorry, I'm geeking out right now. Um, to help them, to give them advice, to be Fellowship for them. But it is their journey to take. It's for them to discover. But you can tell them that they are not alone. That they have loved ones who would be willing to help them in their quest. I would let them know that I will help them as much as I am able. I would proudly stand with them against the adversary which they are facing. My witness of the hope is that people do get better. Sometimes we need to remember that. People need that reminder. People find reasons for living because people keep on living. They find value in relationships, personal growth, creative enterprises, for example. They transform vengeful ire, like a fire of resentment with its destructive capacity into a controlled effort to establish justice. They take that vengeance and they, instead of making things worse in a resentful way, they make the world a better place. The world can be turned into a better place. Worlds can do that. And perhaps your world, too, can be made into something better. God has made everything beautiful in its time and has set the eternal within our heart, without which no man can know the works of God from the beginning. That's in Ecclesiastes 3, I believe it's verse 11. There are things in this world that are beautiful, that are worth fighting for, that are worth living for. We may not feel them with magnificent intensity all the time, which is a tragedy of its own, but we do feel them. I know that everyone in the world has touched this transcendent beauty at some time or another. That is what we're looking for. Once we find this, let's draw near to it. Let's draw near to the beauty. Let's draw near to that light. It can grow brighter and brighter and things can get better. And there is hope in our end. There is hope in your end. I'd also note to the individual, because of my clinical experience, I would note that there are treatments for such conditions. And it's possible, it is possible, that this individual, he or she, could have a medical condition. They may actually be depressed in a medical or biological sense. We do not have a complete scientific understanding of depression, but we do have treatments that have shown, been shown to be effective. If you remember the saying I've mentioned earlier, the brain is not some sacred holy organ that is indestructible or immune to disease and corruption. Kidneys can fail, lungs can fail, hearts can fail, brains can fail, Alzheimer's exists. There is a destruction, a decomposition of the brain that can happen, and there can be specific ways in which a brain is afflicted. It is possible that an individual has a medical problem. And in a matter of life or death, it might be worth investing a few years. And I say a few years because that's what it may take to explore the medical treatments. They're awfully slow. Six weeks per medicine, maybe three months per medicine. And if that one doesn't work, 
on to the next one. And if that doesn't work, then on to the next one. SRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, can help. There are medications that augment dopamine that give people relief. There are people who respond to lifestyle changes, including exercise and diet. There are promising treatments, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation, ketamine. I've had a lot of experience in the use of psychedelics in the treatment of severe refractory depression and have seen great hope there. Most people get better. And I, I feel awful that the treatments aren't perfect. I remember seeing friends, family member go through cancer treatments and how scary that was. And I wish we could give people the easiest path to recovery. But sometimes chemo is what's needed to eradicate a vicious cancer, a vicious disease. And the chemo is awful. Many people I've known with cancer will say, I actually didn't have any symptoms from the cancer, but the chemo makes me wonder if I'd rather have cancer than chemo. It's that bad. The cure is a bit painful. And I'm sorry that many of these medicines may have side effects. They may not come with any consequence. But again, in an issue of life or death, it might be worth investing a few years, making a few sacrifices to make things better. Most people get better if you're patient, if you're persistent with treatments. Most people get better. That may not mean that all of your symptoms and all of your problems disappear, but things get better. They get manageable. Remember that when people are suicidal, they are not always thinking clearly. This magnitude of dissonance may be evidence of some degree of biological interference, which we label a medical problem. Individuals who have attempted suicide and by gracious miracle have survived, they often will look back at the suicide with great regret. They often describe the experience using phrases such as, I wasn't thinking straight. My perspective of life became so narrow I couldn't see outside my depression. I don't know what came over me. I wasn't myself. If you are concerned for your safety, go to a hospital. Hospitals are places where people who are ill go to get better. And if you're struggling to see outside the depression or the suicidal ideations, then a hospital is the right place to go to get your feet back on solid ground. When you're feeling overwhelmed, take a few deep breaths. Do something that brings you happiness. Call someone you love. If needed, call a suicide hotline. If you are a loved one of someone who struggles with suicidal ideations, help the person you love by coming to an agreement to decrease the lethal objects in the home. Lock up weapons, knives, and medications that could be potentially deadly. This will help the individual not act on an impulse and do something which they cannot undo. Death cannot be undone, but depression can be undone. The suffering that people have when they're depressed is real. I do not doubt that. But so too is the hope. So too is that thing which exists within mankind that can confront and shoulder the suffering of existence. 
I truly believe that. And I desire to help all who are seeking to find that. I believe that there are experiences at hand that justify and compensate for the burden of existence and consciousness. I believe that human beings are strong. I believe in the strength of people, ordinary and average people. I see average people lift up extraordinary burdens. I have seen people who are seemingly weak and insignificant, whose worldly resumes were certainly lacking. I've seen these people move mountains. These people, average, ordinary, everyday people, move forward after spouses die, after children die. They shoulder the sadness of loss and the ache of loneliness. I have seen common and base individuals stop smoking, stop alcohol, heroin, and meth. I see people make serious and dramatic changes every day. I see people's depression get better. I see them discover the strength to cope with their afflictions. I believe that you have the capacity to endure, that you have the ability to change, to be born again, be something new. I believe you can transcend your problems and your burdens and your suffering. I believe in you. I believe in man. After a couple years of studying the New Testament in order to complete my latest book, I reflected on some of the most significant messages I received from this difficult process. Two of the top insights were, one, a phrase from the book of Revelation where it referred to Christ as the faithful witness. The second, the second main idea was an idea in connection with the faithful witness. Instead of a common phrase, which you'll hear, which is, believe in Christ. I received this message to believe Christ. Jesus Christ has a gospel. This gospel of repentance, salvation, or redemption emerges from a fundamental belief held by God himself. God would not have sent his son to die for us for nothing. God sent his son to die for us because he believed in us. He believed in our capacity to turn to his son and repent. Christ who shouldered the burden of the atonement, who endured the fury and wrath of God as the sacrificial lamb of God. He could have given up. He could have looked at man and said, this isn't worth it. Man is, is not worth this much suffering. He could have looked at you and concluded that your life and existence was not worth the sacrifice. He could have done this, but he didn't. The implication of the actions of God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, are that you are worth it. Man is worth it. Man was worth the sacrifice. This is what we need to believe. You need to believe Christ. You need to believe Christ when he suggests that you are worth dying for. Jesus Christ has a gospel and he has a witness. He is the faithful witness. His comforter will be a faithful witness for you. It will come close to you. It will witness this fundamental truth. 
that you are worth it. You need to believe Christ when he suggests there is hope, there is redemption, there are miracles and triumphs. You need to believe in the appraisal that God has made concerning your souls. This is the witness of Christ. This is the faithful witness. So believe Christ and God when they suggest, when they say, when they imply that you are worth it, that you are worth dying for. With their omniscient mind, with their knowledge, with Christ's full experience of the atonement, the full review of man, the verdict, the faithful witness, is that despite all terror, despite all tragedy, despite all suffering and pain, that you, with Christ, yoked together, can bear this burden, that you can make it, you can make it to the end. There is hope in your end. And I believe that witness. I believe Christ.